give God praise for his word and the hiding of his word. Let's go to the Lord again and ask him to bless now the hearing of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what our ears have heard and our eyes have seen, the work of your spirit hiding your word in our hearts. We thank you for what we have celebrated in song this morning, your blood which washes us, cleanses us, and your coming to bring your kingdom. And we pray this morning that as we hear what we hear and see what we see and feel what we feel, that you, God, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would become more dear to us and we would be drawn up into you celebrating the salvation that you have given to us. Lord, we do love you, though we have not seen you. We do believe in you, though we do not now see you. And we pray, Lord, by your grace, help our hearts to rejoice with joy, unspeakable and full of glory, as we think about this great salvation. Draw near to us now, Holy Spirit, we pray. Enlighten and enliven us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever seen something truly awesome? I mean, awe-inspiring. Maybe you've stood and you've seen the mighty waters of the falls in Victoria thundering and crashing to the ground. You were awestruck. Or maybe you've stood at the rim of the Grand Canyon and all of a sudden you were flooded with the awareness of how small you are and how great God and his creation is. Or maybe you, like me, saw the person of your dreams and the first time you saw her, you were awestruck. Come on, black love. <laughs> Have you ever been awed by something? Peter's burden in 1 Peter chapter 1 is that we would see that we are saved and stand in awe. It's striking that for many of us as Christians, the idea that we are saved feels ordinary, feels common, so much so that maybe we assume it and don't think about it really at all. I mean, if someone asked us if we were Christians, we would say yes. If someone said, are you saved? We would say yes. And then we would keep the conversation moving, maybe telling them how we became Christians or how long we've become Christians, but we can have Maybe it's just me. You tell me if it's you too. We can have a conversation about our salvation that can be an hour long and not once in that conversation do we fall back in awe. It's because we're weak creatures. We're but dust. And so we need reminders like the one we have here in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we should in fact stand in awe that we are saved, that God has saved us 
through such a majestic and, and wondrous plan of salvation. Now, Peter introduces the topic of salvation almost from the start, back in chapter, uh, back in verse 3. He refers to the fact that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's when he introduces the topic of salvation. In verse 5, just the very next breath, it seems, he says, as we heard recited, that we are being guarded by God's power for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He continues with the theme in verse 6 when he says, basically, in this we rejoice. That this refers to this salvation. In this rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, we are suffering, we are grieving because of trials. He's not done. Verse 9, Peter referred to the outcome of your faith, the whole goal of your faith, which we are obtaining. We are getting, we are receiving, we are achieving, even now, the whole goal of your faith is the salvation of our souls. So in these verses, Peter tells us that salvation is ready, that salvation is greater, and that salvation is effective in saving us. And now in verse 10, the apostle continues the theme of salvation. There's more Peter wishes to say on the subject. You get the sense that Peter can't stop talking about being saved. And you know what? It should be true of us too. Now, these three verses are awesome. I had a hard time figuring out how to preach these three verses. Because almost every phrase we could just sort of stop and camp out in. Peter gives us a theology of the Old Testament. He's given us a theology of New Testament ministry. He is now introducing to us the Holy Spirit. He has worked through these 10 verses or so. He starts out talking about it's God the Father who has caused us to be born again. And in the middle there, he begins to talk about Jesus. He says, hey, you believe in him, though you haven't seen him. Now the main actor in verses 10 to 12 is the Holy Spirit. So we could be spending some time camping out on Trinitarian themes here. I don't, I don't know how to preach this text, honestly. So if it don't make sense, study it when you get home. <laughs> but before we look at it closely, notice, notice the little theology of the Old Testament that Peter gives us. It gives us sort of five statements here. I want to pull out real quick, and then we'll get into it. First, he tells us that the Old Testament is a message of grace. You see there where he says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace. And people commonly think the Old Testament is about law, and it does include law. But we have the law in the Old Testament to show us how badly we need grace. Then he tells us, number two, the Old Testament is, as I said a moment ago, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ was in them indicating things. So this book we have in our hands it's God's word to us. Then he tells us the Old Testament prophecies were about the sufferings and the glories of Christ. At the center of it is, is the Son of God being crucified, buried, and resurrected, and receiving a kingdom and a people that shall be his eternally. The Old Testament, notice this now, has the Christian church in mind. Peter says that they prophesied about the grace 
that was to be yours. And a little bit later, he says that the spirit had revealed to them that they were they were ministering not for themselves or to themselves, but for you. Verse 12. Finally, the Old Testament is fulfilled in the gospel, the good news that was announced. So, so we must read the Old Testament the way the apostles teach us if we want to read the Old Testament like good Christians. If we read the Old Testament this way, we, we give ourselves an, an even greater opportunity to rejoice in the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And again, this morning, that's the burden of our text. Peter is giving these Christians spread throughout Asia and given to us today yet another reason that we should be happy that we are saved, that we should rejoice in the salvation that we have. Here's the main point for the sermon this morning. Rejoice in your salvation because you know a saving grace that neither prophets nor angels knew. Rejoice in your salvation. Because Christian, you know the wonder of saving grace which neither prophets nor angels understand. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to think about this in two points. Point number one, you know something prophets don't. We see that there in verses 10 and 11. And point number two, you experience something angels can't. There in verse 12. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you know some things that not even prophets New. That's a reason to rejoice. And in this text, I want to suggest to you that you know three things, in fact, that prophets did not know. Number one, prophets did not know God's grace the way we Christians do. See there in verse 10, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Now, when you read your Old Testament, do you think to yourself, they're talking about me and the grace God has for me? According to this verse, we should. That's what verse 10 is saying. Again, people often think the Old Testament is just about Israel. People often think the Old Testament is just about the law. Uh, it's about sacrifices. It's about God judging nations and people. And they often contrast that with their view of the New Testament, where the New Testament is about grace and about Jesus and about God's love. Now, it's true that the Old Testament focuses on Israel. It's true that the Old Testament includes law. It's true that the Old Testament includes judgment. But as we said just a moment ago, all those things are there to show us our need, our desperate need for grace. The Old Testament is like God taking centuries 
to teach over and over and over and over again, you can't get to me this way. You can't get to me this way. You can't get to me this way. You can't get to me through your own righteousness. You can't get to me through your own obedience. You can't get here this way. There's only one road to me. It's the street called grace. It's just the main theme of the Bible. And what's amazing here is, is that there is a way to God. There is a way to God. And it's not a toll road. It's not a road that we pay to travel. It's grace. And the nature of grace is that it's free. And the nature of grace is that it's undeserved. Grace is God's kindness, even though we don't deserve it. Grace is actually God's kindness, even though we have forfeited any claim on his kindness. Is God being good to us anyway? How many of you have ever had parents say something to you like this? If you bring home all A's and B's on your report card, then at Christmas time, I'm going to get you this, this thing you wanted, right? I'm going to get you this gift. You know how to It's like, no, you just bring home A's. That's your job. That's good parenting. But many of us have, right? Parents bargain with us for something. And what happens? You come home, you got one C or maybe a whole bunch of C's. You didn't get all A's and B's. And Christmas comes around and you still got the gift. That was grace. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. Your parents were being kind and generous anyway. The text is telling us that that's true of God. The Old Testament prophets prophesied about God's saving grace, but even though they prophesied about it, now notice, they didn't see it in their lifetimes. They recognized that the experience of this grace was to be yours. The church, the Christian church, centuries later, as Peter says in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. The Old Testament is for you, beloved, not just for ancient Jews. The Old Testament tells us of a salvation by grace that was meant for us. Read the Old Testament like it is God's message for you, because you are indeed who God had in mind when he sent those prophets. That's amazing. And you have received this grace in Christ. Here's the second thing that you know that prophets don't. Prophets didn't know the who or the when of salvation. They didn't know the who or the when. See that in verse 10? The prophets who prophesied about the grace of God, which was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time. That's how active they were. Those words searched and inquired. They were digging in the scriptures, turning the scriptures upside down, trying to figure out who and when. They were doing it carefully, not passing up any part of God's word. They were ransacking God's word to try and figure out the mystery of when this grace would be revealed in a particular person and at what time. And when they couldn't find out who searching the scriptures, they inquired, they asked God directly, would you tell us? You get a sense of their desperation, don't they? 
But, but we, we understand this, this reaction, don't we? If God tells you he's going to save you, it's quite natural to ask, how, who, when? If your friend says to you, let's, let's go to a party at, at Brother LaVon's house. What's the first question you ask? Who all going to be there? Who going to get to the who, right? And if the guest list all right, what's the next question you ask her? What time? When? Who and when are the questions we are often concerned about, even in our ordinary plans? How much more so in God's plan of salvation? They want to know what person and, and what time, but God did not tell the prophets. They were left anticipating, but not in the know. That knowledge, beloved, belongs to you and me. We have been brought in on the who and the when. We know it was Jesus, the Son of God, who would save the nations, who came over 2,000 years ago right on time. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Paul says there, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, we live in the fullness of time, right on time. And we live on the other side of the cross, knowing that Jesus is God's son who gave himself for our redemption. As one commentator put it, what Peter is eager to point out is that his hearers are the heirs of the full message of the prophets. The least disciple of Christ is in a better position to understand Old Testament revelation than the greatest prophet before Christ came. The least disciple of Christ understands more than the greatest prophet before Christ. That's you, beloved. That's us. God has given this to us. Let me give you a third thing that we know that prophets didn't. We know, but prophets did not know how to be saved. How to be saved. You see, they were inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, the consequence of all that Peter is saying in verses 10 and 11, the consequence for those Old Testament prophets is that they, they don't know how to enter this grace. They don't know how to enter this salvation. They were tremendously blessed, don't get me wrong. Wonderful things were happening with the prophets. Notice in verse 11, it refers to the spirit of Christ. What an amazing phrase. It proves two things. First, it proves that Jesus Christ is God, since we know that the spirit of God, that the spirit himself is God. Second, it proves that Jesus is eternal. Jesus lived before the incarnation, before his earthly ministry. It was this same Jesus who sent his spirit to inspire the prophets centuries before he came in the flesh. That little phrase, spirit of Christ, so loaded with meaning. But it gets more profound. Notice that the Old Testament prophets had the spirit of Christ where? In them. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit 
did not normally live inside the common Israelite. Instead, the spirit would indwell certain persons for a period of time to accomplish certain ministries. So he would sometimes come upon kings for a period of time. He anointed those who made the tabernacle. And, and here we're told that the spirit indwelt the prophets. It was unique even for their time. But now, the Spirit lives in us all. Not just for a time, but until there is no time. Bringing us safely to eternity. He is the seal and the guarantee of our salvation. Marvelous things were happening with these Old Testament prophets. Better things are happening with us. And even though these marvelous things were happening with these Old Testament prophets, notice now they knew some things, but not everything. They, they knew there would first be suffering. The Spirit predicted the sufferings of Christ. You think about a passage like what we read this morning, Dennis read so beautifully, Isaiah 52, 53, where the suffering servant is prophesied to come and to, to suffer for his people. And then notice the word subsequent. The Spirit gave them the order of the events. First come suffering, then come glories. Then come the glories of the resurrection, the, the glories of redemption, the glories of, of Pentecost and the birth of the church, the glories of his second coming and his kingdom, which shall be consummated. First comes suffering, then comes glory. The prophets understood the order. They just didn't know the who and the when. So despite these blessings of being having the Holy Spirit dwelling in them and, and, and indicating to them the sufferings and the glories of the one who was to come, they still didn't know everything. Listen, beloved, it's impossible to know almost enough about salvation and yet miss out on it. The most critical thing to know is not the what, but the who. There's no salvation apart from Jesus Christ the Son of God. Doesn't matter how many other details you know, doesn't matter how many other things you sort of can document about the events, about the order of things, if you don't know the Savior himself, you are missing the key piece of the puzzle. And this is the testimony throughout Scripture. John chapter 17, verse 3 says this, this is eternal life. Here's the definition now. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You don't know Jesus, you don't have eternal life. Whether you are a prophet or a commoner, you don't know Jesus, you have not entered into this saving grace that the prophets and the Bible testify to. Or John chapter 14, 6, Jesus himself makes it very clear. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There are not many roads to God. There's only one road, one way. There's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is the only Savior. But praise God, there is a Savior. Praise God, there is a Savior. My friend, if you are not a Christian, 
You, we, you must understand this. You must get your mind around this. There is no other name given among men whereby you can be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You must come to know this Jesus through faith if you would go to heaven. He is the door. It is the only passageway to God. He is the way. He's the only street. And it's marked straight, beloved. Wide are the roads that lead to destruction. There are many other rival ideas, many other religious claims. Maybe you have some yourself this morning. I understand. I'm a former Muslim. I'm a former sort of waffler between agnosticism and atheism. I have had my time dabbling in other religious ideas. I was wrong. Wrong. Jesus says I was wrong. He says He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Have you been thinking that you're going to go to God in heaven some way other than Jesus? I lovingly tell you, you are wrong. You're wrong. Just factually, actually wrong. You need a Savior. And the only Savior there is is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who, get this, in love for you, died on the cross in your place to suffer God's punishment for your sins and mine. And three days later was raised from the grave alive, never to die again, to give eternal life and righteousness to all of us who trust in him. That can be you, beloved. That can be you. Now, you, you can be arguing in your mind with me about whether or not your religious ideas are wrong, or you can be considering what Jesus said and what he offers, eternal life through faith in him. Beloved, if you're not here, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we, we pray this morning. We have prayed for you. We will continue to pray for you that you would meet this Jesus and know him, and trust him, and be saved. That's how you know more than prophets, and professors, and politicians, and pundits. That's how you know more than people and their opinion polls. It's by putting your faith in Jesus. We pray that you would. And Christian, this is, this is one of the reasons for us to rejoice in the salvation that we have. We, I I just can't get my mind around it. We, we know more than the prophets knew. We know more about God's grace. We have tasted it. We have received it. We have experienced it. We, we have been awakened to the fact that we are sinners and that because of our sins, we should have been judged in an everlasting hell. We have been awakened to the fact that not only did we do wrong, but we are wrong. Our hearts are twisted. We have been awakened to the fact that we could not save ourselves. And we have most wondrously of all, when we were at once dead, we have been made alive and awakened to the fact that God loves us and proves it through his son. And we have tasted his grace. We have received eternal life. Not by works, but by faith. 
And in this, we have come to know more than anybody in the Old Testament knew. Pick your greatest prophet. Name your greatest king. Identify the greatest of the judges of Israel. The songwriters and the wisdom literature. You know you know more than Solomon about salvation because you know Jesus. So Christian, I want to encourage us this morning to not let anybody move us off the knowledge of Christ as if it's somehow worthless. Love all you college students. You're going to have professors who act as though being a Christian is intellectually ridiculous. Does your professor know more than prophets? No. Is your, is your professor inspired by the Holy Spirit? No. But you, you have God's Spirit living in you, and you have come through Christ to know more even than the prophets. Beloved, don't be arrogant, but don't be swayed by professors who think too much of themselves. Don't let them move you off the knowledge of Christ for some lesser thing. Trust in the Lord. And Christian, if you're here this morning and you've been struggling with your faith and you've been questioning your faith, maybe you consider yourself one of those persons who is, who's deconstructing and, and reconsidering some things. Beloved, do not deconstruct yourself away from Jesus. Do not talk yourself out of the knowledge of Christ. <laughs> that's, that's the one thing you must know. He's the one person you must know in order to properly claim that you have come into this grace of God which saves. And that is the knowledge that actually will keep you rooted and planted unwavering in the storms and the doubts and the concerns and the questions will most surely come. Don't root yourself in doubt. It's like trying to plant your roots in moving water. No, no, no. Root yourself in the word of God, which reveals to us the son of God, in whom we know more than prophets. So, Christian, Jesus is the center of God's entire plan. Explore God's plan of salvation carefully as the prophets did. It was, it was for you. Rejoice in what you do know more than you worry about what you don't know. Meditate on Jesus, dwell on him, rejoice in him. For this is one of the wonders of our salvation, this knowledge of Christ that God has given us. We should keep moving. Number two, Christians, you experience a salvation that angels can't. You experience a salvation that angels can't. And in some sense, the purpose of Christian ministry and the purpose of gatherings like this is in fact to help us rejoice in that experience, to help us rejoice in this salvation that we have received through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 12, I want to suggest to you that Peter, if we take his sentence apart there, gives us a kind of theology of New Testament Christian ministry. He gives us some emphases that ought to be true of every Christian ministry, of every Christian church, and ought to be true and passed on to every Christian who follows Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 12, right in the middle there. 
And he refers to that, uh, these things have been revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but serving you. Then he says this, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. There are four things in here to note that kind of are an outline of Christian ministry, the kind of ministry that leads us to rejoice in our salvation. Number one, know how the Bible fits together. Know how the Bible fits together. He, 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 we learned about and experienced God's salvation in the things that have now been announced. So Peter now is moving from the Old Testament writings to New Testament preaching. He's moving and contrasting the prophets who searched and inquired carefully but did not know. He's contrasting them and what was hidden to them with the church to whom an announcement has been made and knowledge has been given. So this is implying that the gospel, the New Testament gospel in the church is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and promises. That's how the Bible fits together. The Old Testament is promises made. The New Testament is promises kept. The Old Testament is Jesus concealed. The New Testament is Jesus revealed. And knowing how the Bible fits together and, and how God's revelation progresses as you work through it, that keeps us from a lot of errors. Almost from the beginning of the church. Think, for example, about the book of Galatians and how the Apostle Paul wrote to those Christians in Galatia who were going back to the law in order to be righteous with God. And he called them foolish. He says, who has bewitched you? Right? You were running a good race, but now you seem to have gotten off path. You're going backwards. You're hustling backwards, Paul said. He says the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love, faith in Jesus Christ. Their error came from not knowing how the Bible fit together. I think of the Hebrew Israelites in our day, many Seventh-day Adventists, many others who read the Bible backwards, it seems. They go back to the Old Testament as if the answers, the final answers, are in the Old Testament. They're not. The final answers are in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. There they are, the prophets, right? Long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke by them. But there's the contrast. In these last days, in our lifetime, and forward, in these last days, he has spoken to us, how? By his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Right? The whole Bible finds its fulfillment in Jesus. We, we need to know that, how it fits together and be dedicated to the good reading of the scriptures. We would rejoice in the salvation we have. Number two, we should love preachers and preaching. I hated to put that point down. Sounds so self-serving. But it's true. I mean, how did we come to know these things that we know? Look what the text says. Through those who preach the good news to you. Do you want to enjoy the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ? Then love faithful preaching and love faithful preachers. Do not neglect the preached word. God ordains that salvation should come through hearing and hearing by the word of God. Through preaching. 
Reading is good, but God chose preaching uniquely to communicate his gospel. Videos and movies are good, but God chose preaching to confound the wise. Online preaching is fine, but the text refers to those who preach to you. So now, a little theology of preaching here. Preaching is not the kind of thing that should be plucked out of community and consumed without context. There's something that happens between the preacher and the people in the preaching moment. You ever heard a sermon live that just really rocked you? And then you was like, some point later, I'm going to go back and listen to that sermon. You find it online and you listen to it on the sermon, and it don't quite have the same effect. It's not just because you were used to the sermon and you knew what was coming. It's because in the moment of preaching, the Spirit is here with us, working in the preached word, working between the preacher and the people in our hearts to impress upon things, things upon us that are actually pertinent to our community, to our context. So don't, you, you, you don't want a podcast pastor. And you don't want to listen to preachers online who contradict what your pastor teaches you in person. You want the trumpet to make a clear sound, right? And so it's fine to consume preaching via online. That, that's good. I mean, so much word has come to us through that technology. I listen to preaching online, but not preaching that, that takes the place of what we do and not preachers who contradict what we believe. The Spirit works in preaching. So do not neglect to gather together with the saints and do not neglect the preached word. Or as Paul puts it in Thessalonians, don't despise prophecy. God ordains that salvation come to people through preaching. I fear that some Christians have forgotten the primacy and the power of preaching. And when they lowered their estimation of preaching, they went searching for some other word and some other wisdom. And now we're in this age of apostasy. Remember what the word of God says in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 and 15 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then there's a question. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And beloved, let me add a point here. Whoever brings you the good news has beautiful feet. I know that we have preachers that we enjoy, some more than others. But if they bring you the good news, Rejoice, recognize the beautiful feet, recognize that someone has sent them and God's word has reached you. Open your heart to it and rejoice in it. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 25, there the Apostle Paul writes, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? He's contrasting now the Christian with all these other types of people in the world, the, the wise folks and the scribes. Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. That's such an important sentence. Through the wisdom of God, the world did not know God 
through its own wisdom. God decided that human wisdom wouldn't get them there. Right? So since through the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Right? So the text here is acknowledging that preaching seems foolish to people who don't believe in God. And yet, through that folly, quote-unquote, God is pleased to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And where the foolishness and wisdom of God is most often expressed is in the preaching of God's word. It confounds the wise. It shames the strong. Love preaching and love faithful preachers. Number three, meditate on the good news. The good news needs to be central to all we do if we're going to be a community that rejoices in it. You see there, he says the good news to you. They preach the good news to you. Good news there is just another word for gospel. Good news is the news that Christ has died for us and been buried and resurrected for our salvation. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's like, at the middle of my ministry, I talk about a lot of stuff, but at the center of my ministry is this unshaking commitment to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything else I know, I know through the lens of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm a psychologist by training. I have to think about psychology through the lens of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I am a medical doctor by training. I need to think about medicine with Christ in mind. I am an attorney. Uh, whatever it is we are called to do, I'm a janitor. I do it for the glory of God. Whatever it is I am called to do, it is through this decision to be dedicated to Jesus Christ and him crucified, the good news. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, but for, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. A threefold crucifixion there. Christ crucified on the cross. The world crucified to Paul. Paul crucified to the world. He says, you want to know what I boast in, what I glory in, what I exult in? Nothing but Jesus. Nothing but Jesus and him crucified. That's the attitude of New Testament ministry. It puts the good news at the center of everything. The church boasts in the gospel, not in itself. Church must remain focused on Jesus Christ and him crucified even when we are addressing other issues. Listen, beloved, a church that loses the gospel loses its reason to exist. The good news makes the Christian church Christian. I mean, without the gospel, a church is just a volunteer organization that doesn't know what to do with its weekends and Sundays. But this gospel is the power of God. Never tire of hearing it, beloved. Never get bored with reminders of it. 
Share it everywhere. Don't be ashamed of it. Preach it to yourself and to others as much as you can. If you would rejoice in your salvation, then meditate on this good news. Which brings us to a fourth and final thing. Finally, Peter's theology of New Testament ministry calls us to seek the Holy Spirit's presence and power. Notice in verse 12 that this good news was preached by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The gospel can be preached in the spirit, but it can also be preached in the flesh. Did you know that? Apostle Paul talked about the people who, in Philippians chapter 1, who preached Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict him in his imprisonment. That's a wild statement. That there were people who were preaching the gospel because they were trying to hurt Paul and because they had selfish gain in mind. They wanted to blow up. Somehow they thought preaching the good news could be turned into a weapon. They were preaching the gospel in the flesh, not the spirit. But even so, Paul rejoiced that Christ was preached. Why? Because, listen, beloved, the power of the gospel does not lie in the preacher. Power in the gospel is not a function of the preacher's eloquence or skill or anything. The gospel does not gain its effectiveness from man. The gospel itself, Paul says, is the power of God unto salvation. And when the Holy Spirit anoints preaching, even if the preacher is janky, the gospel still has power to save and to build up the church. Now, don't get it twisted. You find a janky preacher, go to another church. But this is how good things can happen in bad churches. Right? And, and this is why confusing the fruit we see with the person and the person's ability in ministry is a significant mistake. And this is how predators remain in pulpits. Because we say things like they're so gifted or they're bearing so much fruit. No, the power's in the gospel. The power's in the Holy Spirit. That rascal is not essential to God's work. I'm not essential to God's work. God will bury the worker and continue the work. What's essential is that we be faithful with the good news. And what's essential is that the Holy Spirit owns our ministry. Our salvation is far too important to God for it to depend on man. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, God takes the gospel in his own hands and makes it effective. Here's what we want as a church. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Notice how Paul describes himself, and then notice what he attributes to the Spirit. Verses 3 and 4, he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Isn't that good? Here even is the great apostle saying, I got clay feet. And I must have sounded crazy to you. But you know what happened? The Spirit showed up and showed his power. And you know what else? 
We want your faith to rest in God's power, not in the wisdom of men. So, beloved, let us be a church that prays like crazy for the Holy Spirit to own the gospel preaching of this church. Plead for the Spirit's power so we can see sinners saved and so that we can see the church built up. If we would rejoice in our salvation, it it needs to be the joy that comes from the Spirit and a sense of the Spirit's presence with us and the Spirit's power among us through the preaching of God's Word. Now notice, too, that this is all tied to the preaching of the gospel and God's Word. It's not tied to some kind of strange, spooky event. In one sense, this is really ordinary. Through those who preach the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Brown paper bag. There are no no fog machines. There's no light show. There's nobody up here pushing you on the head trying to make you fall down. No, I mean real, right? There's nobody strolling down front, blowing at you, trying to make you fall down. All that's fake foolishness. All that's manipulation. It's not needed. We could stand here and whisper to you and the Spirit invades your soul with power. We want the real, not the fabricated. Pray that the Spirit would come among us. Now, I hasten to a close. If we know our Bibles, and we love preaching, and we center the gospel, and we seek the Spirit's power, I'm contending, based on verse 12, that we will be a New Testament church that is, has a culture of rejoicing in our salvation. And that's worth doing, rejoicing in our salvation. Our salvation is so great that notice at the end of verse 12, angels desire to investigate it. Did you see that? Things into which angels long to look. That, the word that's used for how the angels want to look into our salvation is the same word that's used in John chapter 20, verse 25, where it's used to describe John running to the empty tomb to see if Jesus really was resurrected. The angels want to look into our salvation in the same way that John wanted to investigate and explore and eagerly ran to the tomb to see if Jesus really was raised. The angels are looking at this with amazement and eagerness. They want to investigate it. They they marvel at it. They're peeping over the walls of heaven trying to figure out what it's like to be saved by grace. The salvation you've experienced is something even heavenly beings want to understand. Hebrews 2.16 says that when it comes to salvation, it's not angels that Jesus helps, but the children of Abraham, those who have faith in Jesus. He's come uniquely for us. There's no redemption for fallen angels. There's no need of grace for holy angels. That's something uniquely for us. And we taste and experience something that even the holiest creatures next to the throne of God have not yet experienced, will not experience or comprehend. That's how unique our salvation is. So we should never treat lightly 
what prophets and angels treat seriously. We should recognize the blessedness of being a Christian. What we're talking about here in 1 Peter 1 is the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, verses 16 and 17. We're done. Jesus says there, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. How special, Christian, is your seeing and hearing by faith the good news of Jesus Christ. You know not only the what and the when, but most exquisitely the who. Enjoy him and let no one think you are small or insignificant or foolish for rejoicing in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this great salvation. And we do ask with the scripture writers, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We thank you that you've allowed us to behold with the eyes of faith the greatness of your Son. And you've allowed us to enter into the experience of your saving grace through faith in him. And we do confess, O oh Lord, that we don't often enough marvel at this salvation. We don't often enough think about what we have received that so many others haven't, whether prophets or angels. And so we pray that you give us grace this week and each week and each day to sort of step back from the hustle and bustle of this life and to, to just sort of gaze upon the wonder of it all. As if we were on the rim of the Grand Canyon or standing at the foot of a mighty waterfall or as if we were looking Lord at the wondrous sunset let us feast our eyes upon Jesus let us marvel at what he has done and let us then rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory do this for us and for your great name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.